I can remember very well flying on an airplane for the very first time the summer after my ninth grade year of school. It was with a group of high school and college students from my church, and we were headed to New York City, and we were excited for an entire week of personal evangelism in parks and subways and street corners and the like. We wore red aprons that said, prayer changes things while asking people to huddle in prayer booths where we would pray with them and hope to share the gospel with them. I'm not sure my ninth grade self was prepared to be yelled at by large, scary people on street corners in the Bronx, uh, something my fairly sheltered self was not used to. But setting aside any analysis of that method of evangelism entirely, I remember being struck with one clear reality. Christians are different. We are a people willing to do some strange things from the world's perspective from time to time in order that people might know the hope of a crucified and risen Savior. Months before that trip, our team had been preparing. We memorized D. James Kennedy's evangelism method, evangelism explosion. Some of you might have been familiar with that approach. It's been used extensively across the country over the last 50 years or so. But this approach began with two diagnostic questions that you would ask anyone willing to take a religious survey. You would ask, have you come to a place in your life where you know that if you died, uh, where you know that if you died, you would go to heaven? And then secondly, if you were to stand before God and He were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? These were great questions, and they drew out all kinds of interesting discussions from people who were trying to figure out on what basis they had any kind of a standing before God. But the show stopped immediately when someone would say, hey man, I hate to break it to you, but I don't even believe that there is a God. Consequently, I don't even believe there is a heaven. So I don't know how to even answer your question because I don't want to go wherever you think he is, but I don't, and I have no interest in this. And quite honestly, we were stumped because at the time, in the late 90s, postmodernism was shaking the foundation of culture for sure, but the average person was still fairly conversant in Judeo-Christian beliefs. Christians would soon come to realize in the decades to come the breakneck speed at which change was happening in the Western world around them. And very little could be assumed religiously of the average person you might meet. Instead of making a beeline for the cross, one had to begin at creation and tell the whole story with far more detail and time. Well, as Christians in 2024, we look around and we oftentimes think, wow, I don't fit in. I don't fit in. A simple assertion about a difference between a man and a woman or of the nature of marriage or a belief that a creator beautifully designed the world around us. In certain situations, these beliefs can get us in hot water. Christians are having to consider in a fresh way how do we live in a post-Christian, hostile world to the gospel that has changed us? 
Well, the, the Apostle Peter writes to a scattered mass of Christians living in a rapidly changing empire. The Christian gospel is spreading throughout the known world, and it is being both believed and misunderstood right and left. Christians are proclaiming Jesus' kingship over all things, and so the political powers of the day are highly suspicious. They're highly concerned. Are they organizing an insurrection? Are they out to tear down our society as we know it? Indeed, their suspicion will result in Paul's beheading, Peter's upside-down crucifixion, and similar deaths for virtually all the apostles and many of Christ's early disciples. The Christian gospel has always created a stir wherever it goes, but God's people are always to live in markedly holy ways. So when opposition comes, we suffer while doing good, as Peter writes. Before Peter begins to ground these suffering saints in the substance of what will sustain them in a hostile world around them, in verses 3 through 9, let's pause for a moment and ask the Lord's blessing. Lord, we aim to see you more clearly. As we just sung in the song during the offertory, our heart cry is that the Word of God would have its way within us, and that the living and abiding Word of God would be used of the Spirit to transform us little by little more into the image of Christ. Ground us similarly in these truths as the original audience to which Peter writes, ground us in truths that will deepen and in us in the unshakable reality of what you have accomplished through Christ for your own glory. It's in Christ we ask. Amen. Well, last week we observed how the Apostle Peter gives us so much more than a simple hello when he begins his epistle here in just the first two verses. He presents a full package of Trinitarian theology that outlines a three-dimensional display of the glorious unveiling of God's salvation, the foreknowledge of God determining all things for His glory, the sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit, which brings about the obedience of faith to Jesus Christ. But what does the situation look like on the earth where these realities are to be lived out by the children of God. Is this obedience to Jesus Christ through the ministry of the Spirit something we should expect to attain with relative ease? This is where Peter goes next in verses 6 through 9, but not before leading us into an extended meditation on the reasons why God the Father is to be praised as the blessed Father from whom all blessings flow. So let us begin there in verses 3 through 5. Verse 3 begins, blessed be the Father, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3 begins one ginormous sentence in Greek that doesn't end till the end of verse 12. But as one writer notes, run-on sentences say things the best. Not in English, but in Greek, you can just keep that thought going for days, it would appear. 
So everything flows from this opening doxology of praise to God the Father. Blessings are to ring out to God and to bless the Lord. This means to praise Him. To praise the Lord is to bless the Lord. Quite literally, with words, we bless Him. Not that it is impossible to bless the Lord silently within our hearts, but Scripture all throughout the Bible tells us that God is to be praised within the assembly and before the nations so all might know His unrivaled greatness. God is to be blessed for His character alone, for His holiness, for His majesty, for His sovereignty, for His goodness, for His love, and so on and so forth. But Peter says He is to be blessed specifically here for His saving work of redemption. For indeed, He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first reason God the Father is to be praised is for the blessing of the new birth. We continue reading in verse 3. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. So from the wellspring of God's great mercy... He has caused us, the elect, His chosen to be born again. Peter will return to the same idea in verse 23 of chapter 1. Allow your eyes to scan down to verse 23, which states, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. So it's from God's great mercy that believers are begotten by the imperishable seed of God's Word. God the Father produces children through the Son, granting them entrance into His family by means of His imperishable Word. He alone takes the initiative to do this. Just as none of us should take credit for our physical birth, at least we we shouldn't think of it, none of us should take credit for our spiritual birth. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning and you hear that, please don't interpret this and then say to yourself, well, if I can't do anything about this new birth that God alone does, am I supposed to just passively wait for a holy zap or a spiritual feeling or a life-altering crisis of some kind? Something like that? Is this new birth like a package in the mail with no tracking number and you just hope it arrives one day? No, no, and no. The Bible calls each person who is outside of God's family to an urgent call, an urgent call, to turn from the false gods that they are living from for that cannot forgive you It cannot satisfy you. And to turn in faith to salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 6 says, Behold, now, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Psalm 95 says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. No, the Bible's call is an urgent call that you would repent and believe in the gospel. 
And whenever you hear God's voice, and you are even now as the Bible is read and explained, soften your heart, friend, to faith in God's Son, who is your only hope of avoiding God's justice on account of your sins. Just as we heard from the testimony shared in the worship service last week, God saves sinners. He does it for His own glory, and He is similarly calling you to repent and believe. Whether you have been in this church for a short time or a long time, whether you are a young person considering the direction your life will take, whether you're an elderly person who knows you have put this off for far too long, the new birth can be yours today through faith in Jesus Christ. The language of being named among God's seed reminds us of God's promise to Abraham to make his seed more numerous than the stars of the night sky or as the sand on the seashore. Indeed, as Paul writes in Galatians 3, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to, a prom- to the promise. So grafted into God's plan of salvation, Peter will leverage one Old Testament metaphor after another in this book to help us see with greater clarity the fulfillment of so many of these promises in Christ for His church as we persevere in this pilgrim-like life. Verse 3 continues, this new birth produces the blessing of a living hope. So the Father is to be praised for His great mercy, which has given us this new birth, which entails a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the way of the serpent is and has always been sin, death, despair, destruction, depression, discouragement, misery of every kind. But God's seed is the Christian, in the Christian, brings about a living hope, brothers and sisters. They are spiritually alive. We hope for all kinds of things, don't we? We hope for good weather on our vacation. We hope for a job promotion. We hope to learn new skills, and we hope to avoid bad health, and so on and so forth. But this casual way of speech is at the level of birthday card wishes. They don't actually carry something forward that is effective and makes things happen. It is a resolute This kind of hope is a resolute expectation of what God will complete for the children of God. And what is that? It's the promise of resurrection. The promise of resurrection. Christians are not told to endure suffering because of some earthly change of circumstance that God will bring about. If they pray the right way, if they pray earnestly enough that God will change the situation that they are in. He sometimes does, but not in an automatic sort of way. No, Christians have their souls steadied as they trust that God raising Jesus from the dead is for them as well. This steadies the soul. 
Even as Psalm 1 makes clear, there has always been two kinds of people in the world. The wicked who will not stand in the judgment and the righteous who will stand in the congregation of the righteous. Some will stand, others will not stand. Those with a living hope who are spiritually alive just as Jesus Christ is alive right now at the Father's right hand, these living people do as living people do. They do not lay dead as corpses do. They stand alive, resurrected, beholding the face of God in Christ for all eternity, more alive than you've ever felt in your life. The hope of resurrection is not this independent achievement that we aspire to. Not at all. Our hope of resurrection is through our union with the resurrected Christ. For if you have been united with him in a death like his, you shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 6, this is our living hope. It is the hope, as Jude writes, that we will indeed be presented blameless and faultless before the presence of the Father's glory with exceeding joy, even while He keeps us from stumbling day after day after day. The promise of Christ's resurrection means believers will share in it too. Are you waiting for that day, brothers and sisters? Are you anticipating it, especially as you endure suffering? Especially as your lifeline in the hardships of this life? Are you blinded to the daily reality that Christ's resurrection should be for you. As we've considered so extensively in 1 Corinthians in recent months, we can be confident of this. You will rise, believer. You will rise. This run-on sentence continues in verses 4 and 5 as the blessing of a secure inheritance is described here by Peter in verse 4 and 5. The new birth, regeneration, provides a living hope in Christ's resurrection, and as verse 4 continues, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter may have a similar flow of thought in mind as Paul in Galatians when he says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, and if God's seed, then heirs, according to promise. Are you in God's family? If so, an inheritance awaits you. But unlike the promised land to Abraham that could be taken away due to Israel's idolatry or to foreign nations coming to take it. This inheritance is described in an unshakable terminology. First, it is imperishable. 
It cannot perish. It cannot be corrupted. What do you possess that is like that right now? Nothing. Nothing. Amazing. It is undefiled. That is, it is without any form of defilement. It is not like a used book that I often purchase on Amazon that says fair condition, some pages worn, highlighted, underlined, ripped, coffee stained, toddler drooled on, and filled with pet hair. (laughs) This inheritance has no defects. It will never lose its beauty or its original glow. It's not the kind of inheritance that only has about half of its life left. And it's in the process of wearing out. It is undefiled. It's unfading. This word is unique to Peter in the New Testament. It does not wither away. It will last forever. Everything in this world fades. Or at least is subject to fading. But the inheritance for born-again Christians who have been made alive by the imperishable seed of God, they have this living hope of an unfading crown of glory. Peter will write in chapter 5. So as an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance, it is also kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Every now and then, a parent will recognize that there is a moment where something is too valuable to be entrusted to a child who very well may lose it, right, or break it. A parent might say from time to time, you know what, I'm just going to hang on to that thing until we get to wherever we're going to go. I'm going to keep it until the time is right. It's as if God is saying, I'm personally hanging on to your inheritance providing that down payment of the Spirit, but I am hanging on to the fullness of it, and it's so precious that I'm going to keep it in my personal possession, guarding it with my own divine power until it is revealed in the last time. Until the closing of this present age when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, Christians are to trust and they are to obey in the difficult times here on earth. But they do so through faith for a salvation that will most certainly come to them according to God's plan and timing. So friends, do you doubt the promise of your inheritance in Christ? When you start to doubt, ask yourself, do I really think God needs help protecting or keeping what ultimately is from him and through him to begin with. So when the onslaught of temptation feels restless, and when the body feels like it is falling apart due to disease and illness, even discouragement, and when our hearts want to constantly fear what tactic of Satan might hit us next, we can rest in a secure inheritance. What a living hope, a living hope for weary souls. Well, the new birth, which produces a living hope and an unshakable inheritance, leads Christians to 
rejoice. To rejoice in these glorious truths even amidst suffering. This is where Peter's train of thought goes next. As we are called to rejoice in unshakable truths even amidst suffering. We read in verses 6 and 7, In this you rejoice. Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. One commentator by the name of Peter Davids writes this. He says, hope should lead to joy. The rejoice is not a continual feeling of hilarity, nor a denial of the reality of pain and suffering, but an anticipatory joy experienced even now, despite outward circumstances, because believers know that their sufferings are only for a little while. And their inheritance is sure and eternal. This is a well-stated thought by David's because for the Christian, rejoicing is not cheap. Without trying to do so, I think David's points out two false escape hatches, if we want to call it that, that many Christians pursue when faced with suffering. The first, the comedic downplay. And the second, the denier of disappointment. The comedic downplay, this describes a Christian who has been able to make it through most of his life, pushing all the right buttons to secure favorable outcomes that lead others to say he's just a positively upbeat person who's just always even-keeled and easygoing. They seek to avoid dwelling on anything unpleasant. And whenever the first opportunity presents itself, they opt to lighten the mood with comedy or hilarity, as David, David's writes, shifting the focus to anything too heavy. Now, this shouldn't be confused with the Christian who is able to use humor in skillful, well-timed ways to break the burden, as it were, of unusually heavy times for people. That almost is a unique gift that brings a a moment of laughter to say, oh, that's right. God will bring me through this. Thanks. Thanks for that fresh air. No, this is different. Instead, the comedic downplay is the person always looking for escape, to escape the reality of sorrow or loss. So when it comes, and it does and it will, they often either get incredibly angry Or they shut down in silence and almost depression because they realize they can't wiggle free of the effects of a sin-cursed world. And all their tactics to avoid it have failed. Perhaps you've seen individuals who represent this false escape hatch, an approach to suffering that is to get away from it. The other false escape hatch, is a denier of disappointment. This describes the Christian who forces a smile when asked how they are doing, saying, well, you know, rejoice in the Lord always, right? Their words 
try to cover up a heart that if it were made visible to others, would show constantly dashed expectations because the life they are living is not the life they wish they were living. The meditations of their heart swirl in a perpetual whirlpool that says, there's never enough money, there's never enough time for what I want to do, there's never enough encouragement around me, there's never enough satisfying relationships, there's never enough mentors or coaches or disciples or opportunities, and so on and so forth. And the life I want, I guess, is never going to come. So I'm just going to grit my teeth and resign myself to whatever this rejoicing in this pathetic, disappointing life I have to live. The solution for this person isn't to just come out in the open and just start being real by posting every thought they have and highly charged, emotionally honest Instagram posts. Some do that. No, but neither is the, the route slapping on a fake smile and using trait Christian phrases day after day. Thankfully, for both of these Christians seeking to deal with suffering in the wrong ways, the theology of Peter is outlining something that is truly able to change us at the level of our hearts, at the level of our desires. So rejoicing becomes a genuine response when we believe in a living hope and a secure, eternal inheritance when Christ returns in glory. And in verses 7 through 9, we are given the reasons why we can rejoice in these great truths. The first reason to rejoice in the previous, previously mentioned truths is because for the Christian, earthly trials are only a temporary necessity. We read in verse 6, or in verse, we see in verse 6, that Christians can rejoice because the trials of this life are but for a little while. Now, we can certainly feel from time to time as if our trials are unrelenting. They just won't give us a second to breathe. And we may groan with the psalmist, how long, O oh Lord, how long? And this would be an appropriate prayer, a prayer of lament that faces the Lord in true lament and not facing away from Him and grumbling and complaining. How long, O oh Lord? But brother or sister, remember that as you are grieved in various ways, it is a temporary affliction. It is but for a little while. And we can praise God for that, right? In this sense, it is the complete opposite of the inheritance that the Lord has provided, which is secure and eternal. It would appear that these trials, which amount to great heartache and great suffering for the Christian, are sovereignly controlled by the hand of God. He's not the author of evil, as James tells us, but trials are most certainly not out of his control. Rather, he uses them perfectly for his purposes. He uses them to display the authenticity of saving faith. This is the thrust of the next reason why we may rejoice, because trials prove genuine faith. 
Verse 7 continues, so that the, tr- the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may result, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So trials have a way of putting genuine faith to the test. A Christian faith that rides on easy street from the cradle to the grave is an unproven faith. And yet, how many of us want easy street Christianity? In a broken world, God uses trials and suffering as a crucible for testing the genuineness of faith. Peter's audience would commonly understand gold as the most precious of metals, and that when exposed to fire, the gold would be purged of its impurities, which would be burned off. But even gold, Peter says, will perish. But an approved faith is more precious than gold. So when the fires of affliction test our faith and it endures, it will bring great glory and honor and praise to the Savior when He returns. This is the next reason why we must rejoice, even amidst suffering, because an approved faith glorifies Christ when He returns. So is the value of an approved faith just so believers like you and I have bragging rights? Like an Olympian who suffers tremendous setbacks and injuries but endures against great odds to win that gold medal. And in their case, the glory goes to their dogged perseverance. So is this also the case for Christians who have such dogged perseverance to make it to the end? No. Let us remember, if it is God, where where have we been? What has Peter already told us? If it is God who has foreknown a people whom He will save, and if it is God who has caused His elect to be born again to this living hope, He will most certainly carry His chosen ones to the finish line of their salvation. Peter does not mean to hold perseverance in suffering as a kind of pep talk for Christians. The truth is the New Testament speaks repeatedly. 2 Corinthians 5, Philippians 3, 2 Timothy 1, 2 Peter 3, Revelation 14, all to God examining the life of every person at the final judgment. How one walks through trials will reveal the substance of their faith. Did they truly know the Lord and live in the grace He provides? Or did they depend on themselves to fabricate a phony veneer of faith that fools everyone but the Lord? Such a persevering faith brings great honor and praise and glory to our Lord, which should be our greatest desire. Now, I will admit I have not been in ministry nearly as long as some, but in my relatively short number of years, my heart aches every time I think of a number, a growing number of close friends, college friends, childhood friends, and other friendships with people who once gave every appearance to being seriously devoted to loving and serving Jesus Christ, 
but who are now living in open, hostile rejection to the Lord and His gospel. I long for many of them to return while there's still time, but let's presume some of these individuals remain under the guise of a false faith up to the point of death, fooling everyone around them, maybe even themselves. Jesus tells us, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Falling away from the Lord should not become a fixation that we fear in a crippling way. But it is something that rightly situated should cause us to run to God like a child, ready to receive empowering grace day after day for the difficult journey ahead. We need that. Even as we discussed in the Bible class earlier, there is no higher plane of Christian perfectionism that we can launch ourselves into and be on easy street Christianity in the here and now. But brothers and sisters, remember, God knows you. God knows you. There is no hiding from Him then, so you may as well find your refuge in Him now. Verse 8 continues, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Christians may rejoice even amidst suffering because Jesus is their greatest treasure and their greatest joy. Suffering Christians need not be a despondent, morose people. While the present afflictions are sometimes excruciatingly painful, we are always faced with a choice whether or not we will fix the eyes of our hearts on the one we have never seen but love more than life itself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Where will you fix the eyes of your hearts? as Paul will describe it. We don't presently see the Lord physically as Peter had the privilege of seeing, but what do we have? We hear His voice. We hear His voice. Every time we open our Bibles, God is speaking, and He speaks to us through the Son. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Hebrews goes on, He's the radiance of the Father's glory and the heir of all things. He speaks, and so will we believe Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now we've come to core foundational Christianity type of things. Have you strayed from a childlike, sincere love for the Savior? Do you love Jesus? Do you long for Him? Has fascination consumed you over whatever modern-day equivalent is to Paul's warning in 1 Timothy 1 to avoid myths and endless genealogies that he says promote speculation speculation? 
rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Friends, there is nothing speculative about the certainty of Christ's return and the living hope we now possess as we endure suffering in full confidence of beholding Christ's face. So let all distractions fade. Let all side interests that so often want to compete with what ought to be of central importance in our lives. Let, they, let them find their rightful place as marginally important to what matters most in all of life. Keep your eyes on the Savior, no matter what comes your way. Inexpressible glory awaits as the outcome of the faith that results in the salvation of our souls when Christ returns. We do not now see the Lord as Peter saw Him, but Jesus has left us a specific set of symbols that remind us that He is with us through the ministry of His Holy Spirit even unto the end of the age. These symbols of the bread and of the wine They recall the broken body of the Messiah and the once-for-all substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. Public worship, especially its observance of the Lord's table, is an act of gospel renewal, a coming back to foundational truths that we long to see a crucified and risen Savior. Routines shape us. Routines also reveal our priorities. When we miss routines, uh, or we do miss them when they are absent, because routines help form us into who we hope to become. And so by God's grace, the routine of the Lord's Supper helps renew, forge deeper and deeper our ongoing remembrance of Christ's atoning life, death, and resurrection. So we come to the table with eyes of faith, remembering that like our Savior's suffering, ours is temporary. It is temporary. And it will bear forth a genuineness that will bring praise, honor, and glory to Jesus when He returns for His beloved church. So with this before us, let us go to the Lord now in prayer. Our Father, we pray that our hearts would be filled with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the appropriate response to seeing you and remembering you around these elements. Lord, so many here need endurance. No doubt many are discouraged. They are despairing to differing degrees. The effects of a world even specifically trying to simply be faithful to you and your word has resulted in hardship, broken relationships, hostility of different kinds. Would this word from the Apostle Peter build them up that that pain is temporary, but what is eternal is this living hope and the secure inheritance we have 
before the throne of God. And though we do not now see you, our Lord, we long to see you. May the expectation of the glory that awaits be ever before us, moment by moment. And as we remember you through these mere small symbols, we pray that you would strengthen us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.